And I invite you to take your Bible and open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are in the politically incorrect sermon series dealing with order in the church, specifically the role of women. And I'm going to read one more time, maybe the final time we're going to finish it today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. We've been spending more time on this, I think not because it's difficult to understand, but because there have been so many responses to it, and I want to equip you to be able to defend the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 say this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I think most of you know that reading, and much more so teaching what the Word of God says concerning the role of women is not a popular thing to do, but I also would like you to know that that's okay, because Jesus never gave the impression that following him would be easy or that it would be popular. I want to remind you of his words, Matthew 7, 13, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Until Christ comes, we are not going to be in the majority of the earth. Jesus called his followers to deny themselves and to take up their cross. The cross was the instrument of death. Self-denial includes turning from sin, but it also includes turning from ideas and philosophies and methodologies that stray from God's revealed design, no matter how popular or unpopular they may be. Paul, the apostle, understood that he was not going to win any popularity contests with the world. And so in Galatians 1.10, he asks rhetorically, He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He was preaching a message that condemned the entire human race and brought salvation to them only through Christ. To preach Christ and to follow Christ is to denounce And it is to actively fight against the spirit of our age, which is the spirit of independence and autonomy. It's a spirit that says, I'm in charge of my life. No one is allowed to tell me what to do. That is the expression of the sinful heart, as we'll see today. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And it is a distinct expression we see in culture today because there is a rejection in our culture of of authority and particularly, basically, at a most fundamental level, a rejection of divine authority. That shouldn't surprise us. Paul, in helping us understand the world's aversion to truth, says this in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? In other words, none of us is helping God form truth. He's the one who gives us truth. But then Paul says, but we, though we don't contribute, we have the mind of Christ. And that's an important reminder as we continue talking about the issue of church Order. What we have revealed to us in Scripture is the mind 
of Christ, our Lord Jesus, by his spirit, through his word, is going to keep us from being conformed to this world, and he is transforming us by the renewal of our minds, according to Romans 12. Last week, we, be, we didn't start, we studied it two weeks ago. So if you haven't heard the sermons, I encourage you to go online. You can, you can read the notes if that's better for you or listen to the sermons. But last week, it gave you a crash course regarding the egalitarian position. That is those who reject the biblical distinctions between men and women. My goal was to help you understand what I would call the myths of egalitarianism. And just as a review, I want to... Uh, remind you of those one more time. The first myth is that the equality of men and women means there are no distinctions. That's the myth. We're equal with no distinctions. The Bible does teach that men and women are equal. We're made in the image of God. But it also clearly teaches that there are distinctions. We have different roles in God's design. Men and women work together to honor God. We complement one another. And that's where we get the term complementarianism. That's the position contrary to egalitarianism. The second myth is that the fall into sin introduced the hierarchy between a man and his wife. That is not what the Bible teaches. The authority of a man in the family, the authority of, a man, of men in the church, the authority of the woman's submission to her husband, that was part of God's original design. We saw that in Genesis 2. The woman was created as a helper for the man. The fall into sin, therefore, didn't change God's design. It introduced frustration and difficulty and friction and pain in accomplishing the design, much like with bearing children. So the myth is that the fall introduced the hierarchy uh, of a man and his wife or the headship of a man. But the truth is that what, what the fall it really introduced was a rebellion to the headship of the man. The final myth I covered last week was that the Bible gives us examples. Some say there are examples of women pastors and preachers, and that is just simply not true. The Bible gives us many examples of women who ministered in a variety of ways. Uh, Some are even listed as prophesying. They spoke the truth. They taught the truth. Deborah uses the verb. She judged Israel. She, She helped cases, helped give them wisdom, but we do not have any... Um, upheld example, any, any, any endorsement of God where a woman leads the people and addresses the congregation as a preacher. Jesus didn't choose any women as his apostles. Paul never appointed any woman as a pastor or an elder. In fact, contrary to that possibility, what we see in our passage today is that a woman, when it comes to the structure and the meeting of the church, she is to be marked by silence and by submission. She is not to teach the congregation and she's not to have authority over the men. And that clearly rules out any woman from serving as an elder. And we'll see that when we get to chapter three. The role of an elder, the role of an overseer, a pastor, is to teach and to have authority. So last week was me exposing you to some of the general arguments regarding egalitarianism and complementarianism. Today we're going to look back at our passage specifically, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 To 15. Let me read verses 11 and 12 one more time for you. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. And again, this is in the context of the gathered church and the structure of the church. How does someone read that and then allow or promote a woman as a preacher for the congregation? The main response to this passage is to say that what Paul says here is specific to the time and to the place of this letter. In other words, it only applied to the Ephesian church at this season. Some uh, make that argument by saying, when Paul says, I do not permit, what he really means is, I'm not allowing this right now. But the implication that they make is, but eventually I will. This is a view that is trying to minimize, in some cases, the force of the word permit, and there are some problems with that. In the English, permit might sound a little soft, you know, like my kid might ask me for a candy. I said, well, I don't want you to have candy, but go ask mom, you know. People might disagree. But it's used in the rest of the scriptures for very strong authority. It's used to talk about the authority of Pontius Pilate. He, he, he permitted the body of Jesus to be taken. It's used by Jesus to speak of the authority of Moses when he's talking to the Pharisees. And the word here is used also for the authority of Jesus, which he has over the demons and over his disciples. He permits certain things. 
understanding the types of authority this word conveys, I think we can rightfully trade out the word permit with the word authorize, which, which carries a little bit more of the force. The Apostle Paul would not authorize a woman to teach the gathered congregation or to have a position of authority over it. And yet there are churches today who claim that they can authorize what the Apostle Paul does not. The claim being made, uh, some even will call it soft complementarianism, but really it's egalitarianism. They say, well, a woman can't assume the authority on her own. She shouldn't take that for herself. But, but if the elders of a church agree that a woman can come forward, then she's allowed to do that. And the problem in that argument is that there is no authority ever given to the people of God to undo God's commands or design. A child can't legitimately say to a police officer, well, my mom said it was okay for me to steal the candy. That doesn't excuse him from doing what he did. A man cannot legitimately say, well, my wife said it's okay for me to sleep with other women, with other women. She, she, she authorized me to do that, therefore I'm okay. No, no human concession can undo God's command and God's design. A second problem with minimizing the strength of that idea of him permitting is that it opens the door for a dangerous separation between Paul's intent and the meaning of God's word. You guys who took the hermeneutics class might remember that we speak of the Bible as having dual authorship. God is the ultimate author, but his meaning is coming through the man who is writing. Whatever the author intended to say, that is what God intended to convey to us. When we study the scripture, the primary question we're asking is, what does the author mean by what he says? And Paul, as a, as a human author, wrote a number of letters, uses various words and phrases to give instruction. He doesn't always say, you must do this, you must do this, or Christ commands you. He says things like, I urge you, I exhort you. If you go back up to verse three, he says, I desire this, you ought to. If we start allowing ourselves to determine levels of these phrases, we get into serious problems because we have now made ourselves the authority over scripture. The end of that path would be, as an example, the Jefferson Bible, if you ever heard about that. Thomas Jefferson had his own version of the Bible. He cut out portions that he didn't believe should be there and he made his own Bible in various uh, languages he had them. It's called the Jefferson Bible. Uh, particularly, anything with supernatural, he cut that out. I don't want that. What he wanted was just the morals and the, and the good teaching about how we ought to live. That's the Jefferson Bible. I think it was one of the versions, 84 pages, so much shorter than our Bibles now. There are two occasions, just to reference this, there are two occasions at 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, I give a charge, and then he says, not the Lord. And people say, well, you see, he, he, this is Paul talking, not Jesus. But the best way to understand what he's, what's happening there is that he's adding to Christ's teaching. That's all that's happening. He's giving new instruction that wasn't given directly by Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul never intended his authoritative teaching to simply be taken as advice. It was the word of Christ. He says, read this when you gather. That was a status held for the scriptures. So you've got people who want to minimize the strength of the term allow. Those who really don't have an issue with that, just more generally, just say, no, this is not a universal command. This command is rooted in the time and the culture and the place of the original writing. How do we respond to that? First of all, we need to recognize that there are commands in Scripture that are rooted in culture. They're distinct to a time and a place and a people. For example, the Old Testament commands, we say, are given to Israel, not to the New Testament church. So you can go out to lunch today, you can have shrimp, you can have bacon with your eggs tomorrow morning, and you don't have to feel guilty about breaking God's law because Christ came and we have the Acts as Christ declared all foods clean. But there are other things in the New Testament that we would say are cultural. To the Corinthians, Paul said the women were to cover their heads in the church. The men were to have their head uncovered. That's what he told them. Jesus commanded his disciples to wash one another's feet. That's not something we practice in our Sunday morning or Sunday night services. Paul also told the churches to greet one another with, with a holy kiss. And that's not something, I don't see the elders enforcing that. So the question is, how do you and I know when a command is cultural and when a command is absolute? 
There are going to be disagreements on issues like this. There is, there is one group that actually believes foot washing is intended to be practiced today, and it's not a heretical view, it's just what, 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 they, what they believe. If at any time you believe something is cultural rather than absolute, there are three main questions you have to answer, or three, three areas you have to look at. Number one, what does the immediate context tell you? Number two, what, what do we see in broader biblical instruction? And number three, this is the main point, what is the overarching principle? You have to be able to make your case with some combination of immediate context, broader biblical instruction, and then you have to appeal to some overarching principle. Those are the factors, and I just want to give you examples. This is kind of a parenthesis, but I think it'll help us. Let's look at, for example, 1 Corinthians 7. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but just, there's a passage in there where Paul says, single men are not to seek a wife. That's what he says. Why does he say that? Is it wrong to get married? Well, broader biblical instruction says, no, it's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. It's, it's given to us an example of God. But if we look at the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 7, right before the command, Paul says it is, quote, in view of the present distress. So there's some difficulty, some affliction in the Corinthian situation that led Paul to give the advice that single men should stay single for a time. And he also says, if you're married, don't divorce. And I say advice because Paul himself actually adds there, if you do marry, you have not sinned. So he actually makes clear there, this is advice, not authoritative, though the letter is authoritative. So the immediate context supports, this is a limited command. The broader instruction of of the scripture supports it because it tells us that it, it works against what the command is saying. And then lastly, again, the question is, if that's cultural, what's the overarching principle? I don't, none of us have the right to say, this is cultural, so we should just get rid of it. This is the word of God to us, so even if something is cultural, we have to go, okay, this is a cultural expression, what's the overarching principle? I think the overarching principle for a man to stay single during a difficult time is that marriage is good, but there will be times or situations or seasons where it would be wise to put those plans on hold. And, and you can think about what that means in, in, in our own society. Another example would be washing feet. So I'm just going to read First John, uh, not First John, John 13, 14. Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. What does the immediate context tell us? This is Jesus on the night that he's going to be betrayed. He's in the upper room with his disciples and they just had their feet washed by Jesus seemingly because nobody else wanted to do it. We also know that it comes to us in a gospel which is narrative. You will read things in a narrative that, aren't, that are telling you what happened which aren't necessarily telling you you must. For example, Saul in the Old Testament goes to speak to the witch of Endor and you go, what, what is that happening? It's telling you what happened. It's not saying that's the right thing to do. So this is a, a narrative description. Uh, zoom out a little bit. What about the broader biblical instruction? Let's look at that. Is, is there any mention of washing feet elsewhere in the Bible? Well, it is mentioned a little bit, quite a bit in the Old Testament, but it's mentioned there as, as part of life. Feet were washed. You people were barefoot. Slaves were barefoot. If you were fancy, you had sandals, but still your feet are exposed. You're walking on dusty roads, and then when you eat, you lay down, and your feet end up right next to someone's face. You wash your feet. That was the, the normal, polite thing to do. But there is no explicit command to wash feet in the New Testament epistles. Luke, uh, again, a narrative, he speaks of a woman washing Jesus' feet, but no command. The only other time that washing feet is mentioned in the New Testament is 1 Timothy 5.10, and it's speaking there of the widows who are honorable. It says they have shown hospitality, they have washed the feet of the saints, they have cared for the afflicted. So so it's, it's given as a... As, a, as an example of what holiness looks like, but not a lot of reinforcement in terms of an absolute command. I do believe it's a, it's a cultural command. But again, if, if we say it's cultural, washing feet was a cultural thing, we don't have to do it today, although you should wash your own feet at a bare minimum, okay? 
But if this is cultural, the question is, what's the overarching principle? And I think it's, it's, it's easy to understand. The overarching principle is that we should humbly serve others. Washing feet was generally the task of the lowest slave if there was one. And if not, someone, you could put out water for people to wash their own feet or someone like the host would humble themselves and serve. So, so you took on the role of a servant. And then we can think about what that looks like in our culture today. Just some more example. I think it's helpful. 1 Corinthians 11. Married women have to have their head covered. Men must not. I think it's the same as washing feet. It's not supported anywhere else in the Bible. You don't find that mentioned again. But you have to ask yourself, what's the overarching principle? In fact, historically, you see the opposite. Jewish men today wear a yarmulke. They're covering their head. They're doing the opposite of what 1 Corinthians 11 says. But what's the overarching principle? The overarching principle is that married women were to demonstrate humility and submission to their husbands when the church gathers. And there are some societies where this is much more prevalent. There are certain styles of clothing that, is, that clearly identifies a woman as single or married. And, and for the women, that's what it meant to cover their head in, in Corinth. You need to show that you are, you are under the headship of your husband. And so for the Corinthians, that meant wear a head covering. Today, you have to think about it for us. What does it mean for a wife to show show that she's not single, she's married, she has a husband. What about kissing one another? That command is repeated five times in the New Testament epistles, but it always comes in the final verses of the letter, which tend to be a little more personalized. For example, um, Paul says to Timothy, bring me the cloak and the parchment. I'm like, oh, what are we supposed to do? Find the cloak, find a parchment, take it to somebody, take it to your pastor? We understand some things are more personalized. It, it, you know, the ridiculousness extreme would be a man saying, I have to marry a woman named Mary because my Bible reading today said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That's what it says. But we go, oh, that's an angel talking to Joseph, and it has a, a, an actual meaning, I mean, a personalized uh, command there. I need to build an ark. Well, that was God talking to Noah, right? We can take principles from that. So again, there may be people who take it more directly. I do think it's a, it's a cultural expression, but what's the overarching principle then? I think the overarching principle is that when the church gathers, there is to be an evident familial love and affection. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. That should be visible. And, and 1 Timothy 5 supports that because it says, he says, Timothy, treat older men like fathers, older women like mothers, younger men like brothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. So the familiness should be shown when the church gathers. Okay. That's a long parenthesis, but I hope it helps you understand. There's going to be some debate on some issues, but you need to look at immediate context, broader biblical instruction, and then you have to be able to answer the question, what's the principle here? So how does that apply to 1 Timothy chapter 2? Is this command repeated elsewhere? If you wanted to argue that it was cultural, then it, it, would, it would help your case to say, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But I showed you two weeks ago that that's not the case. It's mentioned specifically in 1 Corinthians 14. And it's speaking of a time when prophecy is taking place in the church. And Paul says a woman must be silent. And in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 33, Paul even says this. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. So Paul says this applies not just to Corinth, not just to Ephesus. He says to all the churches, plural. And then he says, that's what you see in the law. So he points back to the law. That's pretty compelling evidence that this is not a culturally bound command. For those who still maintain this is cultural, then they have to answer the question though, what's the overarching principle? What is Paul getting at if he isn't trying to say that women should not teach? And you have a variety of answers to that question. There are some who say that the principle here is that those women in the church who were loud and boisterous, they should not be allowed to talk. So in other words, they think Paul isn't banning all women from speaking, just the ones who were annoyingly interrupting the service. Others say, no, the principle here is that those who teach false doctrine should be silenced, and, and that's what some women were doing. So a woman can teach the congregation, they say, as long as she's not teaching false doctrine. Others say, no, a woman is allowed to teach, but the principle here is that when a woman teaches, she should do it in a gentle way. She should do it with a quiet, humble spirit. 
Others say, no, the principle here is that women weren't to teach in that culture because women weren't educated. And, 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 and so, but now that's changed. Women go to school and they understand more. Others say, no, women, the women, they were new to the faith and so it took time for them to be instructed. Here's the problem with those views. Number one, you, as you can tell, there is no agreement whatsoever as to what the general principle is. Secondly, none of those claims line up with the evidence we have from history or from what God has revealed to us in scripture. The men of that time were uneducated as well. People would go to like elementary school, but the men were poor. They weren't in Roman elite colleges or universities. Also, if you're saying this is about false doctrine, what was Paul saying? The women can't teach false doctrine, but a man can teach false doctrine? That doesn't make sense. Why, do, why define, refine that or you know, why only apply that to women? The most critical element that is missing when you hear these arguments is the immediate context. We don't have to struggle to understand what Paul's point is because he explicitly tells us in the very next verse. I don't permit a woman to teach. I don't permit a woman to exercise authority over the man. She is to remain silent in the gathering of the church. Why, Paul, verse 13 tells us, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. For, that word usually means because. This is the reason for what I said. Adam was formed first, then Eve. That term first can, can talk about time, but it can also mean first in terms of rank. And I think what Paul is saying here is that the chronology points to the hierarchy. The man was made first. So Paul's command about a woman's submission is not connected to academic education. It's not connected to someone being new in the faith. It's not connected to someone being an interruption to the service. This is not a cultural argument. This is an argument from creation. And I want to give you an example of, of, of what Paul is doing here. Let's say little Timmy is grounded from his father because he shoved his sister, he hit his sister, and his dad says, you go, you go to your room, you're grounded for half an hour. Well, five minutes later, dad is on the couch resting, and Timmy's little sister comes in crying. She said, I was outside, and Timmy shoved me again. What is dad going to say? He could give a lesson about pushing and shoving and how that's sinful and we need to control our anger. But he could also get behind that and even add to the guilt and say, Timmy, you're not even supposed to be outside. You were grounded. You're supposed to be in your room. So instead of talking about the immediate problem, dad can appeal to something behind that. And so uh, even if Paul is addressing specific problems like loud, boisterous women or women teaching false doctrine or ina in inaccurate doctrine, even if that's what's happening in Ephesus, he is appealing to a principle behind that. A woman, Paul says, is not supposed to be teaching in the first place, at least not to the gathered congregation. That is a violation of God's created order. And we talked about this a little bit last week, so I'm not gonna have you turn there and spend a lot of time, but you know from Genesis 2, God made Adam first. He made him, he brought the animals, he wanted him to feel his, his loneliness, and then he decided to make Eve, this was in God's eternal plan, and Eve is made as his helper. She is equally made in the image of God, but she was placed there in the garden to serve a complementary role where she would serve her husband and submit to him for the glory of God. That is the created order that God wants displayed and he wants it expressed not only in marriage, but in the church. The man is the head of the woman. That is not because men are smarter than women. That's not because men are superior to women. That's because the way, that's the way God has structured humanity for his own glory and for our good, someone leads, someone supports. For a household and for a local church, God has placed the man in authority and the woman is not to step past that authority. That's the divine design. We don't wanna make the Bible say more than it says, but we don't wanna make it say less than it says. 
We understand that this is God's pattern, but that doesn't mean that it's always going to be expressed. We have situations in which the headship of a man and the submission of a woman is, not, is no longer expressed in a family. We have single moms. We have women who have been divorced. We have widows where their husband has passed away. These kinds of situations are going to happen, but we recognize that those are exceptions to God's design because we live in a fallen world. We recognize that that's not the way God created a family to function, and that's why those situations are especially painful and difficult. And God calls the church to serve and to minister. That's why uh, James specifically says, care for the widows and the orphans. But caring for the exceptions doesn't erase the, the, the principle. Just because a church has orphans they take care of doesn't mean the church can turn around and say, children, you no longer have to submit to your parents. You can rebel. Does that make sense? Does the principle make sense? It's one thing to have a, a, a situation in which we fail to express God's design. And that's the case in every marriage. All of us fail. As husbands, we fail. Wives fail. But it's one thing to, to, to fail and not live up to God's design due to the curse of, of this world. It's another thing to deliberately rebel against God's design. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. The church was rebelling against God's created order, and that's what Paul is pointing them back to. Jesus Christ, through Paul, through Timothy, is restoring the natural created order. The woman is not to teach the gathered congregation. She's not to have authority over it. And I told you last week, and we looked at an example in Romans, that when any of us rebel against God's design, there will be consequences. There will be spiritual consequences, and there will be physical consequences. Verse 14 now speaks to those consequences by jumping or continuing the story of Adam and Eve. Verse 14 continues, it says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. To transgress, it's a synonym for sin, but the, the, the image of the word transgress is to go past a line, to go outside a boundary. Again, the question of Bible study is, what are you saying, Paul? What's your point? In verse 13, he talks about Adam and Eve, and he's referring to Genesis chapter two when God made Adam first and then Eve. But now you have Paul referring to Genesis chapter three and verse 14, and that is a story of Satan tempting Eve and her eating the fruit of the tree which had been forbidden by God. I think most of you know the story. You can study it on your own. It's the first seven verses of Genesis three. Satan comes. He wants Eve to distrust God's wisdom, God's love, he wants her to believe that she can be like God. And so she sees the fruit. She sees that it looks good to eat. She sees that, hey, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm hungry. This is, this is good food. We can eat all the other trees, or the fruit of all the other trees. She, she thinks this is gonna improve my life, so she eats. Why does Paul bring that up? What does he mean by what he says in verse 14? Before we answer that, I think it's helpful to be clear about what he's not saying. He is not saying in verse 14 that Adam was without sin. He's not saying this is all Eve's fault, okay? That is not a biblical, uh, that's not the biblical message. Romans 5, same author, Paul says sin came through Adam's transgression and then through sin, death came. So Adam, in no way, is Adam off the hook for his sin. But he says here that Eve was deceived, Adam was not deceived. So if Adam was not deceived, but he sinned, we could say that his sin was worse than Eve's. He went into this whole thing knowing what was going on, but he went ahead and ate anyway. He watched it happen, and he doesn't say anything in the whole story until the next day when God comes looking for him. And his first words are, the woman you gave me gave it to me. Secondly, as we look at verse 14, I, I don't think it's helpful and it doesn't seem clear to me to say that Paul is trying to make some general conclusion about women. As some people have, have tried to say that. I, I don't think there's a compelling case for that. I don't think he's saying that women are more gullible, women can't handle sound doctrine. That, that's not the point. I think there are some ways in which we, we should talk about the differences between men and women, but I don't think that's Paul's point here in verse 14. So, so, so what is he doing 
It seems to me like all he's doing is giving an example of how disastrous it is when God's design is ignored or rebelled against. And since he's speaking to the women specifically at Ephesus or about them, he uses Eve as the example. The design was broken and she was deceived and she became a transgressor. We know that God gave the instruction concerning the tree to Adam. And if you read Genesis 2, he gave it to Adam even before Eve existed. So Adam was the one responsible to teach and to lead his wife. But what happened? Satan comes and he doesn't talk to the man of the house. He goes around him and he talks to Eve. He went to the woman. And to me, the most shocking part of the story is not that there was a talking snake. It could, be, it could be that other animals in the Garden of Eden talked as well. It could be that this was so close to creation, Eve didn't know any better about animals speaking or not. We don't know. We can't say any of that for sure. There's no chronology given to us between creation and the fall. But the scandalous part of the story is that after Satan and Eve have their conversation, it says Eve eats the fruit and she gave some to her husband and then it says who, she, she gives them to her husband who was with her. She didn't run home to give him a piece of fruit. He was there. If you picture this as a movie, the scene is Satan talking to Eve and they're there and you're watching like, what is she doing? What's about to happen? And at the end, it pans out or zooms out and there's Adam right there next to her the whole time. He sat by in silence watching his wife give in to the deception of Satan, meaning he was not fulfilling his role as leader and as protector. We could say he was the first absentee husband. He was content to let his wife make major decisions regarding God's will on his behalf. And what an appropriate picture that is for what was happening in the church of Ephesus. The men were stepping away or stepping back from their God-ordained role and for the sake of peace or for the sake of comfort or because of their own laziness, they were content to let the women do it instead. When the women in the church supersede and take upon themselves the role of the men and when the men are content to let it happen, the consequences will be devastating. Men will be weakened, masculinity and femininity will be twisted, and Christ will be dishonored. We need to teach this to our children. Men, you and I, we were created. Young men, you're going to grow up. You were created to lead and to love and to protect and to provide. That is your function in this world as a man, in your family. And the most significant expression of that role is not physical. It's the spiritual side. You're called to know the truth of God and by the truth of God, lead your family and raise your children. We're not called to lead like generals giving orders so that our wife can do everything else. We're called to lead in gentleness. We're called to lead with confidence in the scriptures and yet with humble sacrifice like Christ demonstrated. Wives, your job is to submit to your husband in that you are helping him, you are supporting him. Together, the man and the wife together are a beautiful display, Ephesians 5 tells us, of the love and the submission between Christ and the church. And in a similar way, the leadership of men in the church and the humility of women glorifies Christ as well. That's the point he's making. Once you start going outside God's design, bad things happen. There will be disastrous consequences and we saw it in the very first married couple, Adam and Eve. That brings us to verse 15, the last verse to cover, then we're all done with the chapter. This is his final word on the topic, verse 15. Yet, despite the, 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 the fall that came despite the, the consequences of sin, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Again, Paul, what are you saying? What's the point? In verse 13, he makes a connection between the women in Ephesus and Eve 
And now he's going in the opposite direction. He's going back to address the women in Ephesus. The first half of the verse says she, connecting to Eve. That's what I would say. The second half, though, says they. You can notice that. He starts with she, singular, and then he says they, plural. They will be saved. So Eve, again, is one woman, but there's something about Eve and her story that teaches us and helps us understand certain things about womanhood. So what does it mean when Paul says she will be saved through childbearing. We gotta rule out the things we know it doesn't mean. Obviously, this cannot mean that a woman goes to heaven or enters the kingdom of God through the physical act of having children. That would be salvation by works, and if that were the case, that would rule out every woman who's never had children. So what does this mean? There are many interpretations. I'm not gonna hold you, you don't have to choose one, you don't have to agree with me. But I want to share them with you as your teacher today, and and I will tell you some of my thoughts on these and where I tend to fall. There are some who say that this specifically is talking about Eve. Genesis 3.15, God promises that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, would crush the serpent. And that's distinct because in the rest of Scripture, seed is used for a man. But here it's used for a woman, and some people believe that points to the virgin birth, but Just in principle, we understand that it is true that through childbirth, eventually salvation would come. But I don't see how that principle would apply to the women in Ephesus or to the women today because Christ has already come. We're not not having children so that the Messiah would come. Other people have said this verse should be taken as a reference to Mary because Mary literally gave birth to Jesus. That has the same problems as applying it to Eve. Worse, there's a huge jump because Mary is nowhere in this passage. Others say, well, the the word saved here is a reference to physical protection, not spiritual salvation. They argue, Paul is saying women in general are going to be protected from the effects of childbirth. And they say that because there are cases in the Bible where saved is used in a physical sense. It could mean to be healed or to be protected. And it is used like that, particularly in the Gospels. That, that's, that's a harder interpretation for me to accept because I counted 29 times that Paul uses the Greek word for saved, sozo, and all of them are dealing with salvation in Christ, not physical protection, not healing. So I tend you know, not to say, well, that's the one time, especially when it's debated. Others have said that Paul is saying here that women, by having kids, by raising kids, are being saved or delivered from the stigma of having been deceived by Satan. Meaning the men could turn around and say, yeah, it's all your fault. The women did this. And he said, but you're going to undo that stigma by by raising kids. That's, That's possible. I think it gets closer to what Paul is intending to say but I just don't see the context as dealing with a woman's shame and then Paul having to fix that. I think Paul is simply talking about the, the, the God's design and, and the dangers when we ignore it. Another interpretation says that bearing children is not the means of salvation, but what Paul is saying is that women are going to be saved spiritually, eternally, despite the pain and the grief of childbirth, which we know from Genesis 3 is an extension of the curse. And this one actually has a biblical parallel. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, speaking of the day of judgment, says a man's work. If you guys know 1 Corinthians 3, it says you build a wood, hay, straw, gold, silver. The images of your life, your contributions are like a building, and on judgment day it's going to be burned. And he says there, the works of a man may be burned up, but he will be saved through fire. And it's not that fire brings salvation, it's that salvation will come to the man even though the fire has brought him a type of loss. So despite would be a a way to translate the word through. So this interpretation says that women shouldn't be discouraged when they think about the pain and, and the danger of childbirth, which has been the case for centuries This is the product of God's curse. Instead, despite the pain, despite the danger, despite the consequences of sin, women will be saved if they continue in faith and love and holiness. Again, I'm not gonna force you to pick a position and you don't have to agree with me. Personally, the way I read it, I tend to understand Paul's message here in line with the message of James in chapter two. 
Paul says we are justified, James chapter two says we're justified, we're saved by works. And when he says that, he's not saying that our works bring salvation. He makes that clear earlier in the book. The rest of the Bible makes that clear. Ephesians 2, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. What James is saying when he says we're saved by works, is he's saying is that the proper expression of genuine faith is works. The evidence of genuine salvation is works, like the works of Abraham and the works of Rahab. There is a different preposition used here, though. James says we're saved by works, and Paul here says she's saved through childbearing. I know it's different, but I I think the idea is similar. I think Paul is using childbirth in the same way that James uses the phrase or the term works. It's not that the physical act of having kids brings salvation. It is that bearing children is the proper and general extension or general expression of a woman who has accepted the role God has given to women. I'm not saying that a woman has to have a child to to be saved or that a woman must have a child in order to be a woman, but what I am saying is that part of what defines womanhood is the, the potential ability to bear a child. Again, for womanhood, Not all women are gonna have that opportunity, but but in general, that is the role of women. They are the ones who who have children, and we have to to admit that is a a glorious responsibility. Women, especially in the younger ages, have the task of helping prepare and, and care for and protect the next generation. And that work begins from the moment that baby is in the womb of the mother and ultimately into birth. As a pastor, my main concern isn't with a woman who's not married or a woman who can't have children. I have a much greater concern for a woman who says, I'm gonna cast off the shackles of tradition or patriarchy, and I refuse to even entertain the possibility of ever having children. I think it's possible there were women in Ephesus who were doing just that. They either refused to have children or they refused to tend to them because they wanted to teach in the church. That's a temptation, obviously, for a man to to ignore his work in the home to go work, and the women may have been doing that as well. That is a rebellion against God's design, but it's maybe a more um, uh, grievous rebellion because she's rejecting what God has placed her there to do. I would say it's the same applies to a man who refuses to work. I don't want to work. I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids in general. That's a demonstration. What would you say about a guy who says, I'm going to grow up and I'm not going to work. I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to get married. That is a lack of maturity. That is a rebellion against God's order because leadership and leading a family is part of what expresses manhood. And part of what expresses womanhood in society is, despite what our society says, What expresses womanhood is having children, loving them, caring for them, and instructing them. And Paul speaks to that in 1 Timothy 5. He talks about it in in, in Titus 2 as well. It is a wonderful, beautiful, vital part of a healthy church and a healthy society to have women having children, raising children. Again, to be clear, I'm not saying a woman must have children to be a woman, I'm simply saying that a woman is to embrace God's pattern and saying that is good. A woman's general role is to bear, to care for, and to raise children. I'm also not saying that simply if a woman does that, if she has kids and raises them, then she's going to be saved. That's not what Paul is saying because Paul adds a final phrase. He says, if they, now womanhood, if they continue in faith and love and holiness, with self-control, that if matters. What is it that saves a woman? It's not having a child, it's not raising children, that's the expression of her godliness. What saves a woman? It's her faith in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing that saves a man. It is the denial of self that says, I'm no longer trusting in myself, I'm trusting in Christ, I'm trusting in his death, I'm trusting in his resurrection, and that is the faith we desire for every one of you here as our members or if you're visitors, that's the message of Christianity. Trust in Christ alone and fully for salvation. And then for a woman, having placed her faith in Christ, she demonstrates that faith through love and through holiness 
and through self-control, apparently things that were lacking in the church of the Ephesians. The godly woman in general is going to embrace the beautiful calling on her life to raise children, to support her husband, and to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. With all the talk in our culture of girl power, I, I don't know why they wouldn't talk about having babies. That, that's girl power. No man's gonna do that. This is part of God's beautiful design. And ladies, you need to understand our culture needs you. Our church needs you. It is wrong for any of our men to say, that's right, the women need to submit and then not fulfill their roles. Just like it would be wrong for a man to ignore God's calling on his life, it is wrong for a woman to ignore God's calling on her life and step outside the pattern he has set in place and communicated to us. The Bible never says it's a sin to work outside the home. The Bible never says it's a sin to earn income for the home. Read Proverbs 31. She was working hard and she was making money for the home. She was buying property. The concern for women, what you ladies mostly need to make sure about, and the men as well for the women, is that what defines us most is not what culture says matters. It's our relationship to Christ and it's our submission to his design for the family and for the church. So I'm gonna close with one passage. You know this already, we've covered it. Ephesians 4, verse 16. This applies to all of us. This is Christ's design and this is Christ's desire, but I think it it touches here on this topic in a helpful way. It says, from Christ, from him, the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. That's from Christ. And when each part is working properly, that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We want to be working properly so that the body of Christ is built up for the glory of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, you've given us a beautiful design and the work of Satan is to attack and to destroy and to mar and to erase and to lead us away from exalting what you have exalted. Forgive us for the times that we stray as men. Forgive us for laziness, passivity, an unwillingness to lead. Forgive us for aggression, for authoritarianism, for an unwillingness to sacrifice our life to serve those in our care for the cowardice of being unwilling to step in to defend those who need help and to stand up for the truth of Christ. For our wives, Father, for our women, we pray you would grow them to love him, to serve him, to understand the great privilege they have as women, to serve, to love, to support husbands, to to raise children. And together, Father, Help us honor Christ and portray the beauty of the picture you've given us. We ask for Christ's glory. Amen.